Okay, as you find a seat, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 145 as we begin the day. You've got that in your scripture sheet, in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen as well uh, today. So we're going to start right there uh, by, by reading that, that passage, Psalm 145, 1 to 7. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works. I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. So, uh, I believe it is God's sacred trust to me as a teacher in His church to explain and apply the Scriptures for the edification of the saints, for the calling of the lost, but it seems that on, on occasion, on occasion, it is most fitting and helpful for the people of God to remember and learn from the work of God even as we do the Word of God. Verse 5 that we just read says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty. Flip that up there, Jeff. On the the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. On your wonderful works, Psalm 77, 12. Similarly, I will meditate on all your what? All your work and muse on your deeds. So, what I'm going to do today instead of teaching from the Word is to share with you, at least until the end or toward the last few minutes, uh, share with you my testimony, my story of uh, the matchless grace of Jesus that has been at work on my behalf. The month of June is one of milestones for me personally. June 8 will mark the 41st anniversary of my ordination to the gospel ministry. June 11, next Lord's Day, will be my 66th birthday. Yeah, and you new people need to say, that's impossible. You can't be 60. Um, times like these give opportunity for us to reflect, to ponder, to share the story of God's wonderful grace. I, I was uh, born and raised in the city of Ocala, Florida, right in the middle of the state, the son of Frank and Martha Henley, the youngest of five children. I have three sisters and one brother. Uh, my sister, the youngest of the bunch, was five years older than me, and as you, most of you know, she passed away just a little over a year ago. My family is scattered geographically, and uh, they have been scattered religiously as, as well. My mother died in Wexford eight years ago. My father, who was not a believing man, took his own life just before I was 30 years of age. Ours was a quasi-Christian family. What we did not do included things like Bible reading and prayer. Uh, Only once in my recollection did we ever gather as a family to pray, and that was in a moment of crisis. That was it. Not not at meals even. I, I grew up with a with a good relationship with my father. Uh, He enjoyed me because I was into sports, but 
Uh, we, we shared that together, but I figured out quite early in life that what I was being taught at church and what my father was living out in front of me in our family life, these were two entirely different pictures of manhood. And, and I opted to follow the Jesus model. Uh, now, what was Christian about us was our Sunday mornings, okay? Uh, every Sunday morning, I woke up to pancakes and bacon and orange juice. Uh, every Sunday, pancakes and bacon. And, uh, and then for lunch, we come back to roast beef, potatoes, carrots, been sitting cooking and onions and all of that. I, how my mom did it, I don't, I don't know. Uh, with five kids getting us all ready off to Sunday school and church while my dad just hung out and stayed at home and read the newspaper. But it was in uh, that church that she took us to, First Baptist Church of Ocala, Florida, that I was taught God's law and God's gospel. Jesus was an understood and a welcomed reality in my life from as far back as I can remember. Now, uh, Easter Sunday, 1967, stands out as an important date in, in my life. It was on that morning in my 10th year that I made a tearful walk down an aisle to publicly confess my sin and trust in the Savior. Now, what took place exactly in my soul that day, I'm not entirely sure, but I do remember two dominant emotions. One was a sense of sorrow over my sin. Uh, the visiting preacher in our church that day uh, brought a message that, you know, he used an acrostic for his five points. The acrostic was honor. So he had a point for H, a point for O, a point for N, another point for O, and, and a point for R. And, and I remember him talking about honoring your parents, your father and your mother. And uh, boy, I was convicted about that because I, I love my mother deeply, but I, I was, it struck me that I, I didn't treat her well very often. I'm like, well, that's bizarre. I, I love her, but I don't treat, treat her right. Maybe there's something really messed up with me. You know, I, I saw my own sinfulness. Also, this was the year I was in fourth grade, and I hated my fourth grade teacher, <laughs> Mrs. Jacobs. Uh, and uh, I knew I had a disposition toward her that was not, not good, not, not godly. So I, I felt this conviction of sin about those two things in particular. Interestingly, when I was in high school, I ended up uh, dating Betsy J. Cox, the daughter of my fourth grade <laughs> teacher. I, I wondered whether it'd be good for me to tell Mrs. J. Cox she was influential in my coming to faith in Jesus, but I, she might have asked too many questions about that. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm very grateful that I came to faith in the Lord when I did as a child and for the relationship that my heavenly father that I had with him as far back as I can recall. I talked to God. I wanted to serve God. I had a, I had a fairly sensitive conscience, I, and I never went through a period of you know, teen rebellion. Uh, such a stage as that, although quite common, is not inevitable. The teen years do not have to be full of drama and parent-child discord, even though if they are, 
That's, again, not, don't think that this is a strange experience you're going through. It is not. Well, you know, great is the grace of God to save an adult from a life of practice sin, but just as great is the grace of God to save a child and keep that child from the scars and the hurts that sin will often leave on a soul. Such God did for me. Even though I was not some model Christian kid who was out feeding the hungry and saving the lost, the predominant element of my life as a younger man, as a younger boy, I should say, uh, was sports. I, I played and, and loved uh, baseball and basketball and football each in its season. I, I read the daily sports section in the Orlando Sentinel and the Ocala Star Banner, and I, li- I read Sports Illustrated. I lived and died with the Florida Gators, and I knew that one day I, I would... There, there. <laughs> That's Steve Spurrier's number. I knew that one day I would be a star quarterback And as a youngster, I kind of was because nobody worked at it like I did. And I could uh, pretty much make a ball go where I wanted it to go. And my mother drilled into me from early youth that I could do, you know, that I could do anything if I set my mind to it and worked hard enough, right, and would pay the price for success. But even then, in that time from 9 to 13, my desire was to serve God as an athlete, you know, the, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Tim Tebow's story from 17 years or so ago, he basically lived my, my dream. And I told you the story of meeting his mother, and I said, you know, your son lived out my childhood dream. And, and she said, well, how'd that go for you? And I'm like, ah, you know, uh, it turned out pretty good, uh, <laughs> uh, really. I'm okay with how it, how it worked out. But God had other plans, uh, other plans for me. You know, our, our calling as believers, regardless of what we do vocationally, our primary calling is always to know the Lord. It's to know the Lord. During, during the, uh, my early years as a follower of Christ, I can remember particular periods when God was teaching me, showing me more of Himself. Uh, church camps and, and youth events were often such a time for me. You know, sitting around the fire at church camp singing Kumbaya, had some real experiences with the Lord, I think. Uh, I do remember an experience in my 13th year. I think that's accurate. We had a youth pastor named Larry, and Larry was going off to seminary, as youth pastors are prone to do, (laughs) and we were saying goodbye to Larry, and uh, uh, we had a Sunday evening fellowship event, and during that event, Larry and his wife... uh, took me aside, and we went into a room together, and he and his wife said to me, Dan, we uh, both believe that God has something very special and wonderful for you to do for Him, and we wanted to let you know that and pray for you about that. Um, You know, words can have a tremendous impact. I wasn't surprised by that because I thought I was going to be a great quarterback and give the glory to Jesus. And I would have been, except for one small problem, lack of ability. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, when I was 14, my football career took a huge tumble. My family life also began to fall apart. By then, I was the only child left at home. All my siblings had graduated high school and gone off to college and basically never came back. And I found myself alone at home in the middle of my parents' 
growing, increasing hostilities toward each other. And just before my uh, 10th grade year of high school, uh, my parents split up. Now, I lived on an 80-acre farm up until then. My parents split up. My mom and I moved into a two-bedroom apartment downtown across the street from First Baptist Church. Interestingly, a friend of mine posted a picture on Facebook this week from the parking lot of the church, and you could see the apartment that I moved into with my mother in that picture. So I moved into the city. Uh, you know, I wasn't terribly disappointed by that. I was closer to my friends. Uh, I was uh, next to the church. I was close to my high school because uh, that was an important place because there was the gymnasium which became my second home for the next several years. After my football career crumbled, I thought, well, I'll do basketball instead. I had seen this Maravich guy play a few years earlier, and I thought, I'll do that. Um, and I, I played as much as I could at that gym. I had numerous ways to break into the facility, and I determined that I was going to uh, excel at basketball. But my dreams of stardom were eventually crushed by a series of events that I won't go into. And in my senior year, my, my father, my shepherd, my Lord began to, well... He finalized the killing of my athletic dream so that he could build something greater and more wonderful in the ashes thereof. So looking back, I, I see that God in those years was preparing me for leadership in his church. I, I was elected to be the uh, uh, head of our student government, student body president, and part of that was that they sent me off to a student government workshop that summer in Deland, Florida, uh, at Stetson University. And a little early for the picture of me and David. Pull that down. We'll put it back up in a minute. So I'm at Stetson University Student Government Workshop. There were two other, two other uh, things going on at Stetson. There was a cheerleading camp. Uh, and there was a Southern Baptist evangelistic training event for young people. Now you can put David up. That's where David comes in. That's David Poole. He and I were acquaintances uh, up until that summer. And at that particular event where we were there for different purposes, David rebuked me as a brother in Christ. <laughs> that had never happened before. Nothing even approximating that had ever happened before. Uh, and I was, uh, I was defensive and he was awkward. But at the end of the conversation, we looked at each other and realized that we needed each other. He was a serious Christian. I was a serious Christian. We didn't know anybody else, at least no other males, that fit that description. So we became instant best Friends, David, uh, that was my wedding picture. He became my best man. I became his. Uh, and uh, David and I actually had an interesting track our senior year in high school. He had, a, he had a classic voice, announcer's voice. I got him a job at the radio station. And then he got, and the guy that I got, uh, the, the head of the radio station, then hired me after he hired David. So we both were DJs at WTMC, the music machine. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, not only that, we both preached 
Next Sunday, we're going to have Grad Sunday here. You'll meet our uh, seven or so uh, graduates this year. At, at the church I grew up in, when they honored the graduates, they would also have one of them, a, uh, a male sacrificial lamb, who would be assigned the task of preaching that Sunday. And as I, I told this story a couple of weeks ago, you saw the bulletin picture or the picture of me with the. Uh, so I was that, David was that. At, at his church. And so I preached uh, before my congregation at First Baptist Church in the spring of 1975. My first experience in the pulpit, it went fairly well. I had enough experience as a public speaker by then to not fall apart, trying to communicate things in front of a large group. So many told me how nice it was. Some even told me I needed to become a pastor someday. And I thought, no way I'm doing that. So I shared that a couple of weeks back, so we'll skip past it to my first fall after high school. And now things start to get really, really going, really very exciting. I stayed in my hometown for that first year, and I, and I did community college. Uh, and God just did some wonderful things in that year. My friend David invited me to a youth group that he had found. Uh, he was connected with some uh, uh, folks that were a part of this new Presbyterian church plant, and he... Uh, and he connected with what they were doing, pulled me into that. Uh, and so I went to that meeting, uh, about nine or ten uh, young kids, and then this dynamic 28-year-old pastor named Jimmy Young. That's Jimmy Young. Uh, and uh, gradually I shifted my allegiance from First Baptist Church to, that's Jimmy not so young, uh, <laughs> pastor of uh, Grace Evangelical Church, Germantown, Tennessee, uh, I shifted my uh, allegiance to Grace Presbyterian Church. Why? Really, for the first time in my life, somebody was teaching me the Bible at a significant level of depth. They were also challenging me about what it meant to be a disciple of, of Jesus. For years, I'd been a straight kid, you know. I was taught about, uh, but I was taught very little about discipleship, very little about the law of God, very little about what obedience to King Jesus would entail. So I got involved in this little church of committed people, and I was discipled by this uh, extraordinary man and was being transformed. Now, I, I want to spend time, focus time on one element of that transformation today, and that is the transformation of my view of God. It was 1976 at this point. Uh, this was a presidential election year. Remember, uh, who, uh, who was running? Uh, who, who were the two candidates in 1976 for 100 points? Carter and Ford. Very good. Uh, the, the, there they are. Yeah. Uh, it was the first election since Nixon won 49 out of 50 states. Uh, I, I was uh, in a Bible study with my new church, and Somebody, they were talking about the election, and somebody commented that Christians really need to stay out of politics, not, not waste their time with politics, because uh, this person said, and I quote, God has already determined who is going to win the election anyway. Now, uh, there's plenty in the Bible to suggest that the latter part of that was accurate even if you don't agree with the application, which I certainly did not, still don't, but my problem was this. My problem was uh, with this notion that God had predetermined an election outcome. 
I was scandalized by that proposition. Who does God think he is meddling with our human affairs? For me, it was ridiculous to suggest such a thing about God, but I made an appointment with uh, Jimmy Young, the pastor, to alert him to the uh, errors that people in his church were, were putting forth uh, that somebody in his congregation actually thought God had predetermined what was going to happen. To my dismay, I learned that he pretty much believed the same thing. And uh, wow, I sat with him in his office that day for about two and a half hours. And he took me, we opened our Bibles, and he took me through passage after passage after passage. In the first hour, I argued with him. The second hour, I was feeling sort of queasy and shaky. And finally, after two and a half hours, my pastor and brother said to me, well, Dan, I need to go. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us. And, and I looked at him, and I said, I can't pray with anybody that believes what you believe. And I got up, and I walked out of his office, and I walked downstairs to my green Chrysler, and I stuck my key in the ignition. <sighs> and I cried, and I cried, and I was, I was heaving. I, I was so, I was struggling so internally. What was going on for me? Well, uh, I, I think it was the first time in my life that God and I disagreed, or so I thought. When I, when I heard in that, uh, what I heard in that office uh, from the Scriptures, it, it was convincing. I, I knew what the Bible was saying, but I fought against it. Jimmy gave me a book that he thought would help me out. It did not, but one passage of Scripture did help me out. The ninth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. So, wow. <laughs> Here we are. What have we been studying the last 42 Sundays or so that I've been in the pulpit? The book of Romans. Now, some of you know we finished Romans 8. I skipped right over Romans 9. We did Romans 10 the last two Sundays I was with you. And here I am talking about Romans 9. So we're going back to that now. Uh, yeah, to, uh, Romans 9, largely about the Jewish people, but today I want to take you there for a few minutes so you can see what it says and appreciate how it might have altered my thinking and my life so dramatically. Romans 9 is the election chapter, not the kind of election Ford and Carter were participating in, but the election of God, the sovereign choice of God. It confirms with terrible irrefutability that God's choice, not man's, is ultimate and prevailing. See if you don't find it so as well. We read Romans 9, verse 9. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." Uh-oh. It sounds kind of like God chooses, huh? Yeah. And it's an awesome, mind-boggling truth. But logic demands it. 
Scripture teaches it in many places that some are elected to salvation through faith and some are appointed to unbelief, disobedience, eternal destruction. Over all of this, our God is sovereign, meaning he's in control. But here is what drew me up short as an 18-year-old fighting against what it seemed to be saying. The objections that I was raising in my head, Paul in Romans 9 was answering them. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There is, can we get that up? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. But yeah, I was raising questions about God's justice. He did not treat Esau and Jacob the same, did he? Not fair. It was like uh, it, it was it was it was like Paul heard me and replied at every point. Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, God is never unjust, but he dispenses mercy to whom he chooses to dispense his mercy, and he's not required to be merciful to everybody in the same way and to the same degree. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires so let's sit with that for a minute as a young man I kept reading that and reading that boy I didn't like it at all so my, my argument continued so did the logic of the apostle verse 19 you will say to me then why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And yes, that is exactly what I was saying. That's what I was telling God. He could not hold man responsible if he was going to be sovereign like that. But the compelling word kept battering against my pride. Read on, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Read this with me. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Who are you, O oh man? to answer back to God. Shut my mouth. I am but a man. He is God. Let him be true and let me and you love him and live for him and trust him despite the gaps in our understanding. For young Dan, this was all quite intense. I was not accustomed to losing arguments, so I thought. But this one was starting to appear unwinnable. But oh, how very sweet the surrender would be. My stomach was in knots about 30 hours. I could not sleep until finally I read Romans 9 one more time. And I said, Lord, one of us is wrong. <laughs> and I think I know who it is. And as I relinquished my intellectual pride and surrendered to God's rule, I was granted some peace. Understanding came later, but immediately I experienced peace. 
Well, that event was very significant for me because it revolutionized my attitude toward the Scriptures. Before that experience, I'd always believed the Bible was the Word of God because I agreed with it. Now, I came to agree with it because I believed it was the Word of God, and I wanted to know more. I became an eager student of the Scriptures. Studying the Bible became my great love because uh, by that book, I was learning about reality. I was learning about God. I was learning about my Savior, and He was greater and more wonderful than I had ever understood. But yet there is more that came from this encounter with God in Romans 9. My whole worldview shifted. It was like a spiritual Copernican revolution. I grew to see that God is at the center of everything. His will prevails. His plan is preeminent. His power is unmatched. It is all about Him. But at the same time, I learned that I was the happy recipient of extraordinary mercies that are exclusive to lovers of Christ. Romans 9 says that God was sovereign in choosing to make Jacob or Israel the heir of the promises. He was sovereign in excluding Esau, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And you see in these verses that there are vessels of wrath and there are vessels of, of judgment. Some human lives are appointed to glorify God for His justice, others to glorify God for His mercy, and Paul teaches that the reason that God has not come back with final judgment already is that there are vessels of mercy, elect persons who were selected before the foundation of the earth for glory, who have not yet entered into the fold. He withholds, he holds off judgment until they, which they includes us right here, have entered in. Praise God, He has delayed the end of the world until we can come to faith in Christ. He has foreordained everything necessary to make us His children and ensure that we who live in Pittsburgh in 2023 will be with Him forever. Now, because of these truths, we proclaim Jesus to the world to bring in those sheep. We walk in comfort as well. We walk in confidence because the one who begins this good work will certainly perfect it, and we praise God from whom all blessings flow as we grasp that salvation is His doing from beginning to the end. All right. So that's our brief treatment of Romans 9. Now back to my story. Oh, wait. That will have to happen next week. We're running late already, but it'll be my joy next Sunday to share more of the amazing grace of God to this unworthy sinner.